This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell and a dissenting opinion on both sides of the ongoing and worsening violence between the Israeli military, Hamas, and increasingly between Israeli settlers and Palestinians in the West Bank has been a call for peace or some sort of reconciliation, for the end of violence and for the beginning of real diplomacy, to address this state of seemingly endless, deadly crisis. Maybe, it was hoped, Palestinians could work together with Jewish leftists towards peace and justice. Who knows, by working together, maybe there could even be a challenge to the very notion of a nation-state where all can live and love side by side. Whatever tenuous togetherness that had been achieved is being tested now more than ever, with the killings directly affecting everyone who once worked together for peace, who once imagined that another world was possible. In a few minutes, Ariel Angel will be joining us. Ariel wrote the Jewish Currents article, We Cannot Cross Until We Carry Each Other, on recommitting to our movements in this moment. And I would add those movements are, generally speaking, those of peace and solidarity. An article that was originally suggested to us by past This Is Hell guest Liza Featherstone. Ariel is the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents. You can find Jewish Currents at jewishcurrents.org. <clears throat> you can follow them on Twitter, at Jewish Currents. Follow her on Twitter, X, whatever it's called, at Ariel, then the letter L, Angel. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, how was your weekend? How are you doing? Uh, better than yours, Chuck. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, pretty good. Uh, my friend Melissa came in from L.A., as I mentioned last week. We uh, caught up with some old haunts, went to our favorite Vietnamese place. Which place? Uh, Nha Hang. Oh, well. At uh, Kenmore and, and Argyle. Argyle, yeah. yeah. I know that place. That's really great. It's real good. And then... Uh, Stopped by Carrie's for the Bears game, and it was oh, did you? pretty delightfully dead in here. It was great. <laughs> yeah, there, absolutely nobody showing up for Bears yeah, games. It's really it's funny. Funny seeing that at a Chicago bar and, and with empty. TVs in it. I yeah. know, <laughs> completely yeah. empty for Bears games because they're so Ugh. unwatchable. It's the weirdest football. <laughs> it is the for weirdest. the past five years. I went to Sansu Gabsan. You ever been there? Oh, I love that. Place. I love that place. Sweet. Korean food, fantastic. So my weekend was probably like everyone else's weekend, if you're like me and unable to completely avoid the news. Pretty bad. No matter how hard I tried, whether it was just checking my email or looking at my tablet or the phone, or if, like me, you still also get an actual newspaper delivered to your actual home, or every time you turned on the TV or the radio or were just randomly surfing on any device, any device, you probably saw something absolutely horrible when it comes to events in Gaza and Israel. And it seems everything is getting even worse, if you can imagine that, and you can't because it keeps getting far worse than anyone's nightmare. In between all of that, my longtime non-wife uh, returned briefly from caring for her ailing father who lives 150 miles away, and she returned just in time for us to celebrate our anniversary of not getting married. And there's nothing like the romantic celebration of an anniversary. Celebrating an anniversary by protecting your home from bedbugs. Of course, every couple's fa romantic fantasy isn't quite complete without waking up on a Sunday morning 
to discover that your 2006 Central with 130,000 miles on it has finally died, which is a real obstacle to the love of my life, having to drive the 150 miles back to her dad's later this week in order to care for him. So I have a feeling we're going to spend the next several evenings freezing in neighborhood-used car lots, which is exactly what I ended up doing last night. We finally actually got a car at 11 at night. Everything's awful right now. So we'll let's just get to this week's question from hell for our listening audience. This week's question from hell is, what is your favorite misleading and false binary? What is your favorite misleading and false binary? We will share your question from hell answers as posted at Patreon coming up after our talk with uh, Ariel on the situation in the Middle East, especially when it comes to Palestinian and Jewish leftist peace activists. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Will has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure will either fix you or make you very, very sick. (laughs) An article at lifestyle website her.ie, in fact, had the headline, this hangover cure will either fix you or make you very, very sick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good writing, Chuck. Thank you. Um, the site reports Chef Fergus Henderson believes he has a secret to curing that dreaded hangover. The London-based expert says Fairnet, creme de menthe, and ice is the fail-safe way to get <laughs> over the pain that makes you feel like you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking to Vice, Ferguson revealed his secret concoction, but advised anyone trying it to not be put off by the color. <laughs> A green-brown mix that can uh, only be described as sludge. I'm colorblind and that sounds horrible. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, Fernet is a bitter aromatic spirit and is usually taken as a drink at the end of a meal to aid digestion. Why do all the gross drinks end up as digestives, by the way? I have no idea. (laughs) But uh, Henderson has come up with another use for it. Creme de menthe is also a standard way to end a meal, but it's a common cocktail ingredient, too. That makes this week's hangover cure. Fernet, creme de menthe, and ice. Which will probably make you sick. Yeah. We got an email sent to us at Chuck at this is hell.com. You too can email us, message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Tweet at us via X at this is hell radio, or you can post at our discord or Patreon pages. And we have our own Facebook group page called welcome to the Hellhole. And if you do, we will likely share your thoughts with everyone else here on air. Listener writes, hello, my name is David, and I'm a fan of your show. I just wanted to email you guys and thank you for everything that you do. Your podcast means a lot to me. When I think about your podcast, I think about sitting in the car with a friend on cold Minnesota nights. Your podcast also helped me get through the pandemic. I wish I had recommendations for guests as you request, but I actually got more, uh, I actually get more most of my recommendations from you guys when it comes to literature about what is happening socially. If you need recommendations on Soviet history books for pleasure, I can help you with that. Ha ha. Now that would be a good category on Jeopardy. I'll take Soviet history books for pleasure for $800. However, David S., I have a 
few subject ideas, maybe not guest suggestions, but subject ideas that may be interesting. One subject that I know very little about uh, that may be interesting is how the Supreme Court of the United States has gradually deteriorated Native rights. And David mentions a lot of the conservative foundations for eroding Indigenous uh, rights stem from a decision written by the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, City of Cheryl v. Oneida, a case where the Scalia School of Thought intersected with hers. Another topic he suggests is the history of the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party. Basically, because before the Dems came, the state had a progressive party that set the bulwark for what would lead to Minnesota having one of the highest standards of living in the United States. The party is now a cesspool of neoliberals that tout the progress of the past as a reason to continue electing them. He also suggests we have someone on the show to talk about American Catholicism, which he calls a very interesting phenomenon that does not mirror the rest of the Catholic world. In America, there is a large conservative Catholic movement that uses a firm hierarchy, which they are comfortable with, that promises salvation to justify their terrible social beliefs. Often these ideas are contrary to the gospel and mainstream Catholicism throughout the goal, globe. Uh, David is interested in also in hearing a conversation on liberation theology. Finally, he suggests we discuss the American evangelical movement in America and their obsession with Israel that permeates Republican politics. David concludes by writing, I have always wanted to go to your annual parties and your meet and greet. This is hell office hours, which happens every Wednesday evening, but unfortunately I have not been able to do so. I'm a law student at DePaul's night school who works during the day. Listening to your podcast talk about economic and education issues on my Sunday nights really makes me feel seen. I've had to work three jobs in the summers, working 60 hours a week for minimal pay at law firms and bars, often getting to bed at 3 a.m. and clocking in at 9 a.m. the next day. This capitalist hellscape is a grind, and most of my classmates come from economic backgrounds where they have not had to worry about these things. I've always been very fortunate enough to be well-traveled due to generous scholarships that allowed me to study at top European universities, seeing top quality education and receiving top quality medical care when needed from publicly subsidized systems really hammers home the USA that the USA needs to change. My European classmates were appalled over the debt I was getting into for an education. My roommates from Nordic countries actually started to compare, uh, compare with each other their yearly stipends for living their governments uh, the way that their governments gave them money to live. After I take the bar exam and I'm sworn in as an attorney and get a big boy job, I will start contributing financially to the show. Your show is so important to so many people, David. So thank you for the very kind words, David, and apologies for paraphrasing your email due to time constraints. But that said, David, we are going to post your entire email, the email in its entirety on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll be asking subscribers if they have any suggestions for guests on the topics you mentioned. Again, you too can email us at chuckatthisishell.com or message us via Facebook, Discord, Patreon, whatever it used to be called, Twitter. And if you do, we'll likely share whatever you have written with our listeners here on air. Coming up, trying times for Jewish leftist advocates of peace and justice for all Palestinians' peoples. We'll share some of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We'll tell you what happened during our most recent bonus Patreon podcast, which is available right now at patreon.com slash thisishell. 
we will have this week in rotten history and we'll tell you what's happening later this week on the show staring into the abyss so you don't have to this is hell and looking for signs of hope for peace between israelis and palestinians can be a lot like looking into an abyss a profound gulf between two sides that are separated by a bottomless pit it didn't have to be that way and it doesn't have to be in the future but until then palestinians and those on the jewish left will have their belief in peace and their hopes for solidarity challenged more than ever our guest today is ariel angel who wrote the Jewish Currents article, We Cannot Cross Until We Carry Each Other. Ariel is the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents, and you can find Jewish Currents at jewishcurrents.com and follow them on Twitter at Jewish Currents. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ariel. Thanks for having me. And that's jewishcurrents.org. <laughs> oh, I said .com there at the end. I'm looking at .org and I'm saying .com. I don't know what my problem is. Jewishcurrents.org. So your article was posted on Thursday, October 12th, five days after the Hamas attack on Israel, which is important to note because events are moving so fast in Gaza, Israel, and throughout the region. Things are moving so fast that since the article was posted in just the past five days, Israel has ordered everyone, including patients and the wounded in 21 hospitals in Gaza, to evacuate to the south. The area told, uh, told to evacuate by Israel includes 1.1 million residents, and hundreds of thousands are reportedly en route, preceding what seems like an in inevitable land invasion by the Israeli military. In fact, late in the evening, just before midnight local time, on the Thursday your writing was posted, the Israeli Ministry of Defense and the Israeli Defense Forces notified the UN that Palestinians living north of Wadi Gaza, one of the most important protected coastal wetlands on the eastern Mediterranean basin, should evacuate to the southern part of the Gaza Strip in the next 24 hours. That order was made later the, uh, on the very day that you posted this article. When you posted your story only hours before that order was made, did you see this forced evacuation as inevitable or was this in, to any degree a surprise to you? I mean, it was definitely a surprise. I, I think that the scale of the devastation is not surprising and still very shocking. I couldn't. I could not have imagined that they were going to ask for that uh, evacuation. But I did feel that a ground invasion was imminent. Um, just to update on the most recent news, uh, they have delayed a ground invasion until after Biden's visit, um, according to the latest. Uh, although, you know, it remains to be seen whether uh, that that could be avoided entirely. Well, let's hope that it can be avoided. Uh, that's very good breaking news. The fact that there isn't violence taking place, even if it's violence deferred, the fact that there isn't. I mean, there there is quite a right. lot of violence taking place. They're still bombing. They're still shelling, including in the south, uh, where people are being asked to evacuate too. Um, you know, in Khan Yunis, in Rafa. Um, so the the violence has not stopped. It is continuous, and it is. Uh, everywhere. Uh, but in terms of a ground invasion, we may have temporarily avoided that and what remains to be seen for how long. You write that, uh, well, you begin by uh, writing how that week, the first full week of fighting following the Hamas attack on Israel, 
and Israel's counterattack bombardment of Gaza. You write that this has been the hardest week we've ever had to weather as a staff at Jewish Currents. Events are moving so fast that there seems no hope of apprehending apprehending any of it fully, of saying the thing that will feel right for the moment, which is already gone. With great effort, we finish a section of of our explainer on the issue only for new information to surface and invalidate us. It's not just about the facts, feelings, and positions are in flux. How vulnerable are we when our feelings and positions are in flux? How easily Ugh. can our emotions and ideas be exploited for others' political ends? Because later this week, we're going to be talking with U.S. National Security Scholar um, Karen Greenberg about the immediate Bush administration reaction to 9-11, including launching the war on terror, which has become the forever war, the torture program, and the detention facility at Guantanamo, in which uh, Karen is an expert. At times like this, how exposed are our feelings and ideas to manipulation? How much are our emotions in danger? It's it's a really good question. I mean, just to say, I think for everybody who works on this issue, this week has been impossible um, on all sides. Uh, and I do think that there is a very strong chance of of a kind of reactionary response. Um, you know, I'll give you an example of my mother, actually, uh, who I've been sort of moving on the issue of Israel-Palestine over many years, and who has actually just come back from two weeks in Palestine, well, particularly in the West Bank, seeing, uh, you know, the the mechanism and the system of occupation, realizing the magnitude and the scale and the brutality of it, who I'm now just sort of talking off a ledge of of sort of, you know, if not cheerleading this war, feeling like they that it has to be done. Um, it, it It's very, and I also see that closer to me on the left. I mean, in a lot of different directions, there's a polarization happening. I, you know, I, I, I can't even speak about the broader, um, the the broader community right now. I mean, in Israel, these particular, uh, you know, the the populace has been moving rightward for a very, very long time. And these um, kind of, for lack of a better word, genocidal impulses have been playing out um, or have been surfaced in the government very in very uh, direct terms. Um, And so, I'm not really surprised by by the response in that regard, but I think what's what's more interesting is to see people who were moving in one direction or another, or who were even firmly on the side of of justice in Palestine, um, seemingly defecting in this moment, and that that to me is the most painful. So just for people who do not know, uh, Jewish Currents was founded in 1946. It's a magazine committed to the rich tradition of thought, activism, and culture on the Jewish left and the left more broadly. The magazine's major editorial concerns in its first decade included opposition to McCarthyism, advocacy for black Jewish solidarity and the anti-racist struggle, the promotion of Yiddish culture, and support for Israel's founding from a non-Zionist, diaspora-oriented perspective. In 2018, Jewish Currents was relaunched and redesigned. Issues covered include the uses and misuses of anti-Semitism, 
the inner workings of Jewish communal organizations, the politics of Israeli Palestine, of Israel Palestine on the ground, and internationally, race and racialization, strategies and horizons of American left movements, the global rise of the far right, diasporic, uh, cultural re expression, labor, climate, incarceration, immigration, and feminism. So when you write, there are political questions and fault lines that have been simmering under the surface in our organization, in the Jewish left, and you suspect the left generally, exploding to the fore, gumming up the works at a time when an urgency feels paramount. Staff members are periodically bursting into tears, fighting with their families or with their friends, running on a fitful sleep. A contributor's son in a hostage, is a hostage, contributor in Gaza text, still alive. They're bombing everywhere. Nowhere is safe. What are the political questions being asked that are something, are always something that's simmering under the surface? And are they ever changing or generally have those questions stayed and do they remain the same? Oh, it's a tough question. I mean, I think that, that we have always realized that Jewish Currents has, even within our organization, polls um of opinion and thought and and to be honest we've known for years that that based on what we were hearing from palestinians on the ground that um that violent resistance was becoming the kind of dominant mode of resistance as other modes of nonviolent resistance have been one by one um dismissed ignored uh punished with you know massacres and and other <laughs> you know, violent means, uh, and just repressed generally, uh, both on the ground and, and in the diaspora. And so we have been seeing, uh, particularly in the West Bank, a rise in uh, violent resistance. And, and I think we have known for quite a long time that, um, that this was going to erupt and and that Israelis were going to be the victims of this violence uh, sooner rather than later. And we have been talking about what we are, how we as a as a magazine and as an organization are going to respond to this violence, because it's not, um, you know, nobody. Uh, violence is horrible, <laughs> you know, like nobody wants to. Um, defend it or be in a position where um, where you have to look at it and, and think of human beings as some kind of collateral damage. And at the same time, it's very clear to us that this is the this is the result of of the the system itself, the system of apartheid and colonialism that is um, that has reigned for, you know, 75 years. So um, we we knew that this kind of event was going to be um, a pivotal moment for us. And in terms of the questions, it's sort of like, how do you understand uh, the role of violence, even the most horrific violence in a kind of nonlinear uh, struggle for liberation uh, in terms of how do we understand that historically? How do we understand it uh, practically? What does it mean to build a different kind of politics, uh, even like from an event like this? And how how do we do that? Um, and I also think it has to do with who do we face? I think that's one of the major questions that we're asking in this moment, which is basically, 
you know, right now, Israeli leftists are mad at American Jewish leftists and within American Jewish leftists, the people who identify with the Jewish and Jewish left uh, are, are feeling alienated from the people who are leftists that happen to be Jewish. And the, the leftists who are happen to be Jewish are mad at the Jewish leftists for expressing a certain kind of grief. And the Israeli leftists are mad at everybody for not expressing enough grief. And, and you know, it's, it's sort of, um, and then there are, of course, a wide range of people on, on the Palestinian side with different political tendencies and orientations who are also viewing this in a completely different way. And so we're all facing different kinds of Jews in this moment. And we're also facing different kinds of Palestinians in terms of where they sit on this, you know, map of, of relation. And I think that different, different people on the staff hold different positions. There are people who on the staff who their families are all in Israel and, and this is affecting them in a completely different way from people who have no connection to Israel and whose political community is made up more of diaspora Palestinians, for example. So it's just, and and these groups of people, even though broadly being on the same side as it relates to wanting the end of this apartheid, wanting a kind of just resolution to this, um, to the 75 year uh, catastrophe, uh, can't really agree on language and can't really agree on the approach and, um, and and just don't speak the same language about how that should happen and what it should look like. And, and so we're really seeing that come to the fore in this moment. It can be very paralyzing. It, and it also means that, that coalitions that we're start of starting to form are finding themselves in, in a very deep level of crisis. Do you think that was the intent either of Hamas to break up the idea, to undermine the notion of an alternative, that alternative being peace instead of war and violence? Do you think that either side in this conflict, that their intent in any way was to eliminate the notion of the alternative of peace? I, I honestly can't speak about Hamas. I think there are people who are experts on Hamas uh, who are much better to speak to their intentions. I do see, I, I can speak very well to the context of the Israeli government, which is that this government has said over and over again that they do not want to negotiate and, and that they want all the land. I mean, like that that has been very, very clear. There were moments where the quiet part was not being said out loud. And that is, this is not one of those moments. Um, there is a basic refusal of, of diplomacy. And I see Hamas as a very convenient partner for the Israeli government in that project. Um, you know, I mean, I know that sounds strange to say that they are partners in that project, but I, I do really think about it that way. Um, that they are kind of mirroring one another in a, on a certain level. Um, but I think, you know, if anyone who understands kind of like virtuous cycles and vicious cycles, um, they, they are kind of locked in that together. And there has to be sort of a, an exit ramp, a way out of that into a more uh, virtuous cycle. You mentioned the context of colonialism 
and apartheid. Is the U.S. uncritical or even supportive of Israel in this conflict because of our own colonial or even uh, our, our history of structural and institutional racism? Is, is our own history what leads us to have little criticism for Israel at times? I mean, I'm sure that those things are connected, but I'm, you know, as a magazine that covers this issue closely, I'm also looking at the very, the more direct reasons why this is happening. I mean, there are geopolitical reasons, there's like military reasons, there's the, you know, fact of the number, the sheer millions of evangelical Christians in the United States who support this, um, you know, and how that affects our political system. There's the amount of money that the APAC lobby has and the amount of power they have in Congress. You know, we've seen, we've been tracking very closely uh, in our reporting the ways that progressive challengers in Democratic primaries have just been pummeled by investment by APAC to defeat them, even before they say anything about Israel-Palestine. Um, so you know, we're watching, I mean, this is also something, you know, that I would say uh, is important to understand generally for people who don't care about this issue, but care about the progressive horizon in the United States, that that this issue has been a way of um, destroying the horizon for progressive politics um, at the electoral level uh, for quite a long time. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of focused on the more practical reasons, but yeah, of course, like I think I think that the fact that um that Americans identify more with Israeli lives, you know, like that that when they look to Israelis, they see themselves more than they feel about Palestinians, although that's changing and that's generational. Um I think that that also has to do with, you know, who Americans are by and large, um, and and what what maybe a lot of their histories are. Now, again, I don't want to generalize because I think there are a lot of different kinds of Americans and with different uh, backgrounds and different backgrounds of you know experiences of colonialism in places where they come from. Um, so, you know, but I think in terms of of who who sets the narrative in the country. Um, that's that's where I think it's centered. Well, let's talk about that narrative for a moment. You ask, how can we publicly grieve the death and suffering of Israelis without these feelings being politically metabolized against Palestinians? You write of feelings being politically metabolized against Palestinians during their t this time of grief. Quote, we have good reason to worry about this. As Israelis count their dead, politicians in Israel and the U.S. call for Palestinian blood in direct genocidal language. So there was the story of Hamas beheading babies, which the IDF mm -hmm. has never confirmed. There were rumors of Iran behind the entire invasion, which again, the IDF and defense ministry cannot confirm. There was the Hamas leader calling for a day of jihad, which quickly turned into days of rage in the US media, harking back to the 1969 national call for action organized by the Weathermen here in Chicago. Again, the FBI, even before the day, the day of jihad, said there had been no signs that there was in no was any increase in danger to American citizens. While 
only one of the four meanings of jihad means to rise up violently. U.S. politicians like Republican U.S. Representative Matt Gates responded online by posting that Americans are armed and will not be intimidated. Over the weekend here in Chicago, 71-year-old suburban landlord stabbed and killed a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy, as well as stabbing the boy's mother, who survived. The landlord said he believed he and his wife, quote, were in danger. As he told police, he feared the woman he stabbed was going to call over her Palestinian friends or family to harm them. How much are unfounded, grisly, threatening rumors or stories, what you describe as calls for Palestinian blood in direct genocidal language? How responsible is such language for this kind of deadly violence we saw here in the suburbs of Chicago? Do you think that this can get more and more deadly, not just in Israel, Gaza, the West Bank, but here in the United States, as long as this language is not challenged. Yes, I do. Um, and and I don't think that it's just, um, and I also think that for what it's worth, the there is a lot of potential, I'm hearing about a lot of violence against um, Muslim and Arab and Palestinian people in this moment, it feels very post 9-11. And I also think that there's there's probably, you know, we may see retaliatory attacks against Jews, which could start its own cycle here. So I am very, very nervous about this. And, and I'll bring it back again to, to my mother, just to personalize it for her, you know, hearing these kinds of things from the president uh, that, you know, there's mutilation of bodies kind of reinforces this idea that the people who are doing this are are u- uniquely evil you know that there's something about them that is is irredeemable and of course like these are atrocities like i'm not I, i'm not minimizing them by any stretch i just i think what is being left out of the picture is that the average gazan has gone through several massacres of this size that were just as indiscriminate and killed you know, scores and scores of children where, you know, a bomb, the way a bomb mutilates a body is not less gruesome. And this is part of the experience of Ghazawis, you know? So like, I, I, it's very difficult because there's a way that things are being discussed where there's sort of a, a unique or proprietary horror around what Israelis just experienced and, 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 and without taking anything away from that, because I think that, that it's, I mean, unimaginably, unimaginably horrific. I think we just need to understand that, that, you know, Palestinians have been going through this for 75 years. Um, and, and that there is, you know, that, that, that there are many parallels on the other side that most Americans just don't see and don't look at. Um, You know, as soon as we get into the realm of these people are evil, irrational, um, you know, bloodthirsty monsters, then we are in genocidal territory. I don't know how else to say that more clear. I mean, this, you know, and, and in Israel, this this rhetoric is very direct. I mean, 
you have Yoav Gallant, the Minister of Defense, saying basically we are fighting human animals and we'll act accordingly. You have Isaac Herzog, the president, saying essentially there's there's no difference between Hamas and, and civilians. So um and and you have uh you know I just saw a clip of of somebody in the Knesset, a woman saying um that the children of Gaza brought this on themselves, you know. So I, I uh, th this terrifies me to no end, honestly. So how how much do you think our opinion might change? I, I know this is a hypothetical and I apologize, I apologize for that. But how much do you think our uh, an outsider's view of what is happening with Israel and with Gaza, how much do you think that would change if we did know what daily life was like in Gaza. We do not see reports on the nightly news here in the United States from inside of Gaza. We don't see very often articles from people who are living their lives inside Gaza to tell us exactly what life is like in Gaza. How much do you think our opinions toward Gaza and in the situation with Israel and the occupied territories would change if we did have a better understanding of what daily life was like for Gazans? Let me be clear. Like, I, I don't think that people who really understood what life was like for Gazans, I'm not saying that you would have to say, okay, so I accept Hamas, you know? Um, but I think there would be an understanding that, um, that if you give people something to live for, they will, they will embrace a politics that that fits those contours, you know, and and I think we do have to understand that on some level, many people in Gaza see what Hamas just did as as a bid for their lives, um, however horrific and brutal, and and I think we have to take that really seriously, you know, in terms of looking at what it means about their lives. I, I don't, you know, all I know is that the people who are closest to, to the kind of reporting on this event and also just the advocacy for it, who kind of know the most about what is going on, just don't have the same moral certainty in that some of them, I won't speak for everybody, don't have the same moral certainty in the moment, uh, you know, about what is to be done, you know, there's like what I would like to be done. And there's, there's what happened, you know, and there's an understanding of, of how it happened. So I don't know, it's an unsatisfying answer. I, I don't know what people would think, but I do think they need to look very, very closely at, at what's happening in Gaza and, and what kind of, um, at, at what what human beings deserve the chance of at life that 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 all human beings deserve you mentioned this genocidal language like you were saying we are fighting human animals and you also quote former ambassador to the united nations and republican presidential candidate nikki haley saying finish them netanyahu and democratic senator john fetterman declared neutralize the terrorists do do those who use these kinds of genocidal terms, as you call them, do you think they really mean them? I mean, during campaign season, we often see, read, and hear analysis 
that states during primary season, uh, politicians are far more likely to use extreme speech as they are talking to their base. But when the general election comes around, they tend to step it back to better appeal to the greater public or even nominated presidential candidates making promises they know they cannot keep as merely the process of political campaign. So are Haley and Fetterman aware that their language is in fact genocidal? Are they careless or clueless or worse callous when it comes to possibly provoking Palestinian genocide, if not fueling it? Are they I, are they I think I think that that Fetterman, I would hope that Fetterman is being clueless, that he just thinks that he's talking about the terrorists and not the civilians and, and doesn't really understand the the extent to which those two groups have been completely collapsed in in discourse and in Israeli discourse and also in the military response. Um, Nikki Haley, I don't have quite so much um, faith in. I mean, I don't have real faith in any of these people in terms of understanding this, but but I, I think she probably knows a bit more what she's saying. Um, I... I think that um, I think that I, I fear that there's a way in which the world is sick of this, and there's a desire that we're seeing for it to be over in one way or another. And I fear that on a certain level, this feels like a way out you know, that this feels like a way to finish it once and for all. And that really scares me. I've, I've heard from a lot of people in the last couple of days who just, who aren't really connected to the issue, um, who are sort of like, yeah, I just didn't see it. I just didn't see it ending any other way. And now I just want to be on the other side of it, you know? And that's one of the responses that scares me the most. Um, because if people don't feel like there's any other way of of there's any real hope for for a solution uh, for a diplomatic solution and a negotiated solution, um, then they I think are willing to accept quite a lot. And that's when your and your writing goes in this amazing discussion of the genocidal impulse, which we'll talk about just in a moment. We are speaking with Ariel Angel, who wrote the Jewish Currents article. We cannot cross until we carry each other. You can find out more about Ariel at arielangel.com. Follow her on Twitter at Ariel L. Angel. You write of this genocidal impulse spreading. In this way, Jewish grief is routed back into the violence of a merciless system of Palestinian subjugation that reigns from the river to the sea. It is mobilized by U.S. politicians who support Benjamin Netanyahu and his extremist government, which has intensified Palestinian death and displacement and disappeared any hope for a diplomatic solution. Why do you see Netanyahu's government as extremist? I think that's a pretty easy question for you to answer, but why doesn't the U.S. view his government as extremist? Well, first of all, the U.S. does view his government as extremists, and they know that there are extremists in his government. They just are are too far in bed with them. I mean, there's just no way of of getting out. You know, I mean, like like those are our you know geopolitical allies in the in the Middle East. And to be honest, I think 
if I had to guess what was going on, the Biden administration has completely lost control. And and to try to exert more control would might even be to, to demonstrate how little control they have. Um, why do I say that this is an extremist government? I mean, this cabinet includes people who are avowed Kahanists. That's Meyer Kahana, who ran a um, political party called Kah, um, that is widely considered to be um, terrorist uh, and was even banned in Israel for being too extreme. Um, these are people in the government who are open annexationists, open eliminationists. They they want the West Bank to be emptied, annexed and emptied of Palestinians and have, have uh, stepped up that uh, stepped up that uh, campaign in the last year. And many, many Palestinian villages have been emptied and their and their uh, inhabitants moved to displaced once again. Um, we're also seeing uh, repression in Israel, um, a dismantling of the judicial system, which is one of the which is which was already not a protector of, of Palestinian rights. Let's be clear, but was maybe perhaps one of the last checks on the Knesset, um, and and we've also seen sort of calls to expel Palestinians from inside, uh, you know, Palestinian citizens of Israel who are um, deemed disloyal. Uh, so. You know, we're seeing things in Israeli society that have been simmering under the surface for a long time, but that were sort of not necessarily open. Not completely. I mean, there were strains of this in in Israeli politics for a long time, but I I think some of it is new, and we have to recognize that it's new. You write of the genocidal impulse; it is marshaled to drum up support for sending weapons to Israel. You then cite Israeli journalist Hagai Matar posting, uh, pointing out in Plus 972 magazine, this is done even as we know that, quote, there is no military solution to Israel's problem with Gaza, nor to the resistance that naturally emerges as a response to violent apartheid. Is the military solution at this time genocide? And if it is, does that solve Israel's problem with Gaza? Um, look, the question of whether it's genocide is a very complicated question in the sense that, like, when do you call it a genocide once it's over or or when the when the mechanism or the machinery is in place? Um, you know, Jewish Currents published a piece saying that this is a textbook case of genocide unfolding in front of our eyes by Ross Siegel, who is a professor of genocide studies at Stockton University. Uh, we published it because, you know, we got in touch with some, gen you know, with genocide scholars and asked, what are you seeing right now? And they said, we are seeing the the tracks being laid. Um, I, I forgot the question in the, in the, uh, just saying those words out loud are so, is so uh, upsetting. The question was, is the military solution genocide? Well, so I think and on does, some and, level... And the other part of that was just to say, does that solve... Does the military solution solve the problem? I mean, that's what I'm saying, is that I'm afraid that for some people, that's, that's, that is one solution, you know? 
um, you know, there's always been a question about Gaza separate from the West Bank. Uh, you know, it's it has a different situation. It's been under a blockade, not direct occupation. Um, and, you know, it's not connected. It's not contiguous with the West Bank. Uh, and it's densely populated, you know. Um, and so this is what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that they're going to push, you know, a million Gazans to to Egypt, and they're going to kill many, many more. And then the then Gaza is not a problem anymore um, on a certain level. And that is uh, terrifying. That's a terrifying quote unquote solution um, that should not be allowed to happen. Um, and I think we just have to recognize that there are roughly equal numbers of Jews and Palestinians living between the river and the sea, and no victory of one on the other is going to be complete, and that they are going to have to figure out a way to live together. You mentioned a journalist, Heb Jamal, uh, telling you that, uh, uh, he has also lost someone this she. week. Uh, she, I'm sorry. She has also Heba. lost somebody this week, uh, 20 years old. Uh, Heber writes, I did not rejoice over death. I rejoice over the possibility to live. And as such, I cannot condemn the militants if I believe even for a second that there might be a possibility of all of this finally to come to an end. What explains the belief that the attack by Hamas and the counter-offensive against Gaza by the IDF. What explains that belief that this might actually lead to this finally coming to an end? What gives anybody any sense of hope in this situation? I mean, are you asking me, like, why Palestinians have responded in that way or some Palestinians? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I find it very uncomfortable to speak from the position of Palestinians, but, you know, in terms of what I'm listening to and what, what I hear from people I know and, and kind of my own sense of the situation, there is a sense that there's a status quo. There's a sense by Israel that there's a status quo that can be maintained indefinitely. And you hear among people uh, this idea of like managing the conflict um, to make a certain form of permanent repression so seamless from the Israeli side that even as it gets worse and worse for Palestinians, it's just not experienced on the Israeli side. And there's a there's a way for Israelis to manage it that, that keeps it con under control. And I think that there's been a growing sense of hopelessness among Palestinians that like, this could be real, you know, like, like maybe there is actually no way for us to resist that could beat the, the, the system. And I think that people are really seeing the hubris of, of that Israeli idea falling in this moment. The idea that actually you can't uh, manage the conflict, so to speak. Uh, and, and I think that that creates a sense of possibility that destabilizes things. Um, you know, in, in what direction, like if it's only going to be more carnage or if we can build towards, you know, keep, keep building a better politic on top of that, that could move towards, 
you know, could move towards liberation, it remains to be seen. But what is very clear is that is that a status quo that seemed completely undisruptible has been disrupted. And that that creates a certain measure of space to do something different. Now, the fact that like it's very it seems difficult to do something different in the moment because of all the factionalism and because of like the just the sheer magnitude of the response and and the devastation of that, um, you know, I I don't know what's going to happen, but I certainly see the ways that um, that something has changed. And we have to take that seriously and we have to do what we can with it. I mean, we have no choice. You write that one of the most terrible things about this event is the sense of its inevitability. The violence of apartheid and colonialism begets more violence. Many people have struggled with the straight jacket of this inevitability, straining to articulate that its recognition does not mean its embrace. I'm reminding myself that it was from Palestinians, many of them writing and speaking, in the pages of Jewish Currents that I learned to think of Palestine as a site of possibility, a place where the very idea of the nation state, which has so harmed both peoples, could be remade or destroyed entirely. How was this understand, understood as a possible challenge to the nation state itself? Because I haven't heard that before, and I'd love to know more about it. I mean, the nation state, I think, was founded on different ideas about who is in and out of the nation and how we define identity within the nation in terms of a shared language or a shared land or a shared, um, you know, history. And I think that we, what we are seeing, what we know, you know, that for me, I won't speak for others, for me, the best outcome in in the land is for Jews and Palestinians to to share the land uh, and for neither group of people to have to leave. And, and I tried to express that in my essay and, and actually like, that's pretty radical in the sense that, that the future container political container would have to contain uh, two equal populations that consider themselves pe peoples in their own right and would have to be kind of, assimilated into a, a singular system, um, which would necessarily kind of rearrange them uh, in, in different ways. Um, I think that it raises questions about locality and different ways of thinking about sovereignty and autonomy in smaller ways, not just like on the level of the state itself. I think it raises questions about uh, how us, how a nation could have kind of multiple identities. Um, it raises questions about uh, reparations and how reparations can uh, be, you know, adequately, how, how we can adequately address um, the harm that has, that has happened um, economically and otherwise. Uh, I think that that nothing like this has has been attempted in my mind. I mean, like there are other versions, but I, I think this is like all of that on steroids. Um, and, and that is, for me, those have always been the most inspiring or, you know, like thinking about Israel-Palestine as a space of experimentation in, the, in that 
way. Like, you know, it's a late nation state and maybe it could be, um, the you know a site to to think about a way out of the the traps of that and and also the ethno nationalist um the ethno nationalist traps of that um so yeah i mean i i don't know i don't know if i've answered your question but i think that what i what i dream of is just a way of people re rearranging themselves and re and uniting around political lines you know uniting around um issues of you know they work in a certain trade or you know um or or they like to knit or whatever you know like start starting to figure out um how we get out of these essentialized ideas of of peoplehood um without destroying those 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 two peoples and their identity but but finding other ways that that they participate in a shared project. You also mentioned that what Exodus reminds us is that the dehumanization that is required to oppress and occupy another people always dehumanizes the oppressor in turn. So will the oppressor increasingly become dehumanizing as long as the oppression continues? Is oppression not only what will possibly destroy and dehumanize the oppressed, but also what will within the oppressor destroy them and dehumanize them as well is oppression you know something that ruins both sides yes i mean i think what we've been seeing in the in the last several months as the israelis have been uh protesting their government's um dismantling of their democracy i mean it's frustrating that many israelis don't connect that dismantling of democracy to the Palestinian cause because it's directly related. I mean, the reason that uh, the reason that the government wants to uh, get rid of the checks and balances or what's what's left of them is so that they can carry out what you know whatever they want to carry out vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. And and this is a, a a lack of democracy that started in you know with Palestinians that is now spreading to Jews. Uh, and we're about to see an enormous amount of repression, and we already are on um, Israeli Jewish activists within within Israel who are going to be fighting this war. So I just think we have to recognize that that whatever we, you know, whatever Israeli Jews do to Palestinians is going to be within their own society. And I, by the way, I think also the other thing is true. I mean, we know that Hamas, um, in terms of the way that they, you know, their their violent attacks within Israel, they also that that violence also gets turned on Palestinians in Gaza who are dissenters, you know. And so, I think we just have to realize that, like, unless we kind of again exit into a more virtuous cycle, that then then we are trapped in some way in in this vicious one. One last question for you, Ariel. Ariel Angel has been our guest. She wrote the Jewish Currents article, We Cannot Cross Until We Carry Each Other. Ariel is the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents. You can find Jewish Currents at jewishcurrents.org. Follow them on Twitter at Jewish Currents. One last question for you, Ariel, and I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. It's the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. In many conversations on our show, 
guests have mentioned a conflation of vengeance and justice. Whoever we are, whatever religion or ethnicity or nationality, whatever race, sexuality, or gender identity, why does it seem impossible to disconnect revenge from justice? Why does violence justify more violence? Why isn't our reaction to such horrible violence instead peace? I mean, it doesn't seem impossible to me. You know, I mean, a lot of people are talking this week about grief and talking about uh, how like there wasn't enough room for Isra- for grief over Israeli deaths, particularly on the left. And and I think it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about the the Shiva, um, which is the Jewish um, ritual around death. And I was just thinking about like what would be different if if we took that, you know, like if the Israeli government took that, like if they had not immediately started. And I know that that sounds crazy on some level, you know, um, but but to a certain extent, it would have been it would have made some political sense. I mean, you have over a hundred uh, hostages in Gaza, you know. So it seems like why not make your first uh, priority getting people out, you know, like up, uplifting the value of the human lives of of your citizens. Um, and and trying to negotiate towards something else. And I know that that's not, it seems like impossible to imagine, you know. But um, but we have to. We have no choice. Um, you know, there's just no there's just no way, you know, now we've already there we've already far exceeded the Israeli deaths in Gaza. Um, you know, Dozens and dozens of families have been wiped out at every level, like, you know, the grandparents, their children and their their children's children. Um, And I don't think we're any closer to, you know, the end of this. So I don't know. That's the answer to the question from hell that really kind of resonates with me. Um, You've been giving me goosebumps. I really appreciate you being on the air, Ariel. I will, hopefully, we'll have the pleasure of having you on our show again. This has just been an amazing conversation, and I truly appreciate you being on our show today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. And, man, talk about grief. Jeez. That conversation on war crimes and terrorism and crushing dissent and solidarity and grim prospects for peace, oppressors dehumanizing and becoming dehumanized themselves, war, cruelty, brutality, racism. Oh, now I remember why the show is called This Is Hell. Whatever you may have learned from our talk with Ariel, show your support for a completely commercial free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you simply cannot find anywhere else. Giving airtime to opinions, analysis, and perspectives like that of Ariel's that you are not going to hear anywhere else and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including more than 10 years of shows at our website right now, thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all of that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com this is hell slash this is hell I should say patreon.com slash this is hell uh, this Friday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time 
Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. And somebody has to, because you know that to corporate and public establishment media, this is hell, so nobody else is going to do it. On our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which went live this past Friday the 13th, there's something wrong, dreadfully wrong, and everyone seems to know it. But nobody seems to know what is wrong. Or maybe we're just not willing to admit what we all know is very, very wrong. Whatever it is, what's wrong is causing a record number of people to kill themselves here in the United States. So how can that be the case if this is the greatest nation not only currently in the world, but the greatest country in the history of the world? If the USA, USA, USA is truly number one, somewhere, everyone in the world would rather live here than where they are right now, which supposedly drives immigration that everybody just cannot wait to get in the United States. And it's not caused by economy-crushing sanctions imposed on immigrants' home countries or the effects of the U.S. fueling climate change. If the United States is so freaking great, why are we killing ourselves in record numbers? I tried to figure that out on last week's Patreon podcast, which you can hear right now by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. And I think I have figured out what's going wrong. Following my attempt to figure out what that something is that is wrong, we played an interview in response to a question we posted on Twitter last week. Just a few days after Hamas invaded Israel, we asked followers on X or whatever it's called, did you hear about the new drinking game that's uh, guaranteed to keep you sober? You do a shot every time you see a Palestinian interview by the U.S. uh, press. Best part is there's no hangover. What I did not know at that time was that morning... CNN's Fareed Zakaria had actually interviewed a Palestinian, so we're sharing an, we shared our interview with that very same Palestinian, a conversation we had way back on February 18th, 2006, with Palestinian democracy activist Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, who spoke to us from the occupied territories. Mustafa is a member of the Independent Palestine Party and came in second in the 2005 Palestinian presidential election. He and his party represent a democratic alternative for Palestinians, which frightens both Hamas and the Netanyahu government. But the only way you can hear that, my search for that something that is wrong, causing so many Americans to kill themselves in a conversation about a real democratic alternative in the occupied territories, is by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. You also get a special secret code word that gives you a discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. As a Patreon patron, you can ask me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, your very own question from hell. Our Patreon page is also a great way to stay on top of everything going on behind the scenes here on This Is Hell with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers. You get all that at patreon.com slash thisishell, as well as showing your support for completely independent, commercial-free, so not-for-profit, we can't afford to be a not-for-profit, this is hell. Will, what is this week's question from hell, and how have our listeners responded on, I don't know, whatever you want to do. Have Patreon? Patreon? Yeah, sure. we'll do Patreon. Uh, this week's question from hell is, what's your favorite misleading and false binary? What is your favorite misleading and false binary? And first up on Patreon is Craig H, who responds, The obvious one is you must vote for either the Democrat or the Republican. 
followed by Kaz. There are only two kinds of people in this world. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, I do too. Neil C. replies, your money or your life? <laughs> wow. Yikes. Uh, Adi replies, By the way, that's a real binary at times. Yeah, it can be. <laughs> that's, not, yeah. that's not a false binary in any yep. way. Yep. Adi replies, you can't have your cake and eat it too, Balderdash. <laughs> yeah, I can have my cake and eat <laughs> <Yeah>. it too. <laughs> um, Essential replies, the two-parent family. <laughs> That's good stuff. Um, old Grouch replies, vote for the lesser of two evils. Mm, okay. All right. Uh, Mason replies, with George Bush or the terrorists. <laughs> show made a lot of hay of that one for yes. years yes and then finally public university universal comrade replies one zero one zero zero one one zero one zero followed by not one not two but three signs of the horns <laughs> i like that one want to do any more uh sure yeah let's see what's going on on the main facebook page doug m replies disjunction is either inclusive or exclusive. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I'm gonna have to wrap my mind around that. Yeah, for a I'm while. gonna have to mull that over. <laughs> uh, uh, Wocheck R replies, stand or kneel. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> yeah, there's always laying down. Yeah. Um, Good point. <laughs> Sheldon B replies. You are either for democracy and thus must vote for the Democratic Party, or you are for Republicans and are for fascism. <laughs> okay. Ray O replies, this is hell or this is not hell. <laughs> and Fabio A replies, top or bottom, this switchophobic language and I won't stand for it or take this sitting down. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's good very good, stuff. Fabio. Very, <laughs> very good. good. Any more on Facebook? Uh, not that page. All right, so we'll get to Welcome to Hellhole tomorrow, as or later this week, as well as on, uh, what else do we have to do? Discord, Discord and, and on uh, Twitter. Twitter is currently empty, but and email, there's time it, left. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can post it on our Discord or at our Patreon page or at the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. Or email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. By the way, the Welcome to the uh, Hellhole Facebook group page that's a way where people are connecting a lot. There's a lot of communication going on there between listeners uh, because for whatever reason, Facebook isn't throttling that as much as all of our other social media accounts. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell following Seb Vupper and the past inside the present when Seb, a historian by trade, gives us the historical context from the past for us to better understand the present and what is Seb talking about on this week's Past Inside the Present, Will? Seb closes the book on the Chinese dynastic era and shares some difficulties that Chinese history presents. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History, on October 17th, 1091, 
932 years ago this week, the city of London was struck by the first documented tornado in British history. The twister ripped through the center of town, destroying large churches, hundreds of houses, and the famous London Bridge, which at the time was built of wood. Despite the widespread devastation, only two deaths were recorded. The bridge was quickly rebuilt, again of wood, but it would burn down again 40 years later, after which it was rebuilt once again, this time in stone which sounds like a bit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Come to think of it, all of British history sounds like a Monty Python bit. Uh, silliness aside, in December of 2022, the Weather Center reported seeing a tornado in London, England is not unusual. But the tornado that ripped through the northwest of the city in, on December 7th, 2017, was not your average cyclone. The tornado didn't even last a minute, but it swept through several streets and injured six people. More than 100 properties were damaged. Last tornado with, which caused significant damage in London was in 1954. It injured six people and ripped off the roof of the Gunnersbury London Underground Station. Who knew tornadoes were so not uncommon in London? Also in Rotten History on October 17th, 1961, 62 years ago this week, as the Algerian War for Independence from France was reaching its peak, the roughly 150,000 Algerians living in and around Paris, many of them French citizens, were chafing under a police curfew imposed two weeks earlier after several years of sporadic bombings by Algeria's National Liberation Front, or the FLN. And just the sound of the word chafing is unpleasant to me, and police enforced chafing sounds like the worst kind of chafing. The curfew targeted explicitly at so-called, quote, French Muslims of Algeria required them to be off the streets from 8.30 p.m. to 5.30 a.m. Seeing it as a racist order, the FLN, again, that's Algeria's National Liberation Front, had called upon Algerian men, women, and children to converge in the French capital for a nonviolent demonstration. In nonviolent protests, that does not sit well with colonial rulers like France. Learning of the imminent protest... Police, Paris police chief Maurice Papon ordered his men to put it down. Papon was a former Nazi collaborator who had helped deport more than 1,500 Jewish people to death camps during World War II and had also tortured civilian suspects in Algeria. So, of course, France put, put a police chief, Paris, Paris's police chief, a Nazi, who played a role in mass executions in charge of putting down protests demanding democracy. Now that's accountability. Papon trusted his Paris cops to act on their own anti-Arab impulses. Yes, the Nazi police chief involved in the Holocaust was depending upon his own cops' racism in order for them to be really, really violent. As more than 30,000 unarmed demonstrators emerged from the subway stations in central Paris, they were attacked by some 9,000 riot cops who made more than 11,000 arrests, mostly based on people's physical appearance. At several points along the Seine River, the police opened fire, beat demonstrators, strangled some to death, and threw others into the river alive to drown. Some historians would later estimate the death toll as high as 300 people. But at the time, the French government imposed a cover-up, censoring the press and releasing an official death toll of just three. Algeria would achieve its independence the following year, 
but anti-Arab discrimination would remain widespread in France. Police Chief Papin, you know, the Nazi, already awarded the French Legion of Honor because, you know, that's what Nazis deserve, would later serve as a cabinet minister in the national government. Again, he's a Nazi. Not until 1998, when Papin was convic convicted and sent to prison for his crimes against humanity during World War II, would details of the 1961 Paris massacre and his role in it be revealed to the public. And while that massacre has since been acknowledged by French authorities in various speeches and ceremonies, the national government has never issued a formal apology. Maybe now would be a good time, seeing as how you've criminalized any protest against Israel. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Will, who are our upcoming guests here on this week's show? Upcoming guests uh, include Chrissy Stroop, who will be on to discuss her open democracy writing, Twitter's death will shape the 2024 U.S. presidential election, people forced to give up on truth amid a deluge of fake news are more easily manipulated by those with power. Sweet. And following that up is Tom Dispatch contributor Karen J. Greenberg, who returns to This Is Hell to discuss uh, her latest article, Closing Guantanamo? Yes. A snail's pace, but a pace. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing today's show. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. We are having This Is How Office Hours tomorrow, Wednesday, but they're going to be a little bit earlier, starting around 5, ending around 8, because we are doing a show on Thursday morning. Live from the United States, where the price... <laughs> Let me try that again. Live from the United States, where the press has the freedom to be propaganda. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.